one should be strange towards the word democracy. Again, look at the word globalization and also everything happening around us. Democracy, on one hand, is not just about the voting equality. It's not just about the social equality. And most importantly, people are saying that today, democracy is standing at the crossroads, particularly if we're looking at the nation, for example, France, Germany, the United States of America, and also including some countries in Asia. But meanwhile, when we talk about this modern democratic system, how much do we understand the meaning within the countries of the Latin American regions? Too often we tend to overlook those countries and mainly again with the ongoing political unrest and also this social chaos. But meanwhile, it's still important for us to understand what is happening in those countries today and why is it still important and also imperative for us to understand and also to evaluate the word democracy among those nations. Well, so that's why in this episode, we need to address all those questions. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Dr. Gabriel Hetland. Dr. Hetland is Associate Professor of Latin America, Caribbean, and Latina on Studies and Sociology at the University of Albany. And he received his PhD in Sociology from UC Berkeley in 2015. Again, if you follow his work, you should be familiar with his new book, which is entitled Democracy on the Ground, a Local Politics in Latin America's Left Turn. Well, Dr. Hatland, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, again, Dr. Hatland, I want to get started. As we mentioned before, too often when we think about the word democracy, we tend to think about the nations such as, again, France and Germany or even the United States of America. But I want to ask you the very simple question. When we talk about the modern democracy, which nation should be the best example? Because in your book that you referred, and I quote, democracy is a form of competitive elite rules or means a system in which ordinary people can do and exercise real control over decisions affecting their lives. So again, which country should be the best example when we look at the definition or even understand the value of democracy today? Thanks, Will. Um, great question. And I think that you've uh, you know put your finger on the fact that it's a hard question to answer because there's a debate about what democracy means. Um, so if you take democracy simply to mean an electoral system, most countries in the world currently call themselves democracy. And on certain measures, most of them could be considered democratic to some extent or another. But even the United States, where I live and, you know, do my work, um, has been called a backsliding country, a country on the verge of authoritarianism, because just in terms of formal democracy, just in terms of what we sort of could think of as a Schumpeterian definition of democracy as competitive elite rule, there's major obstacles, there's major problems, there's sort of blockage to even voting. Um, but I think of democracy, um, my preferred way of thinking about it, rather, I think of it in many different ways, but my preferred way of thinking about it is as a sort of deeper and more extensive form of democracy, approaching but not equaling what um, the original meaning of the word, so rule by the people, so sort of ordinary citizens, um, non-elites, um, sort of workers, peasants, um, you know, farm workers, various um, folks who work for a living, but across the board, just sort of everyone, 
Um, so the people actually exercising control over decisions that affect their lives. So if we take that definition of democracy, then I think that, um, you know, the two countries that I study, Venezuela and Bolivia, in the time period that I'm looking at them, which is sort of roughly 2000, I mean, I look at it over a historical period, but the height of the left turn would be sort of 2008, 2010, 2011, 2012. Both of them could have a claim to being a fairly democratic country on certain metrics. Um, I think if we're thinking about it today, you know, other countries um, that could have a little bit of a claim to that. Some of the Scandinavian countries that have produced a more social democracy, so there's greater mm-hmm. equality. Um, there's, uh, you know, high levels of union density in those countries. Within Latin America, I would say Uruguay, Costa Rica are some of the countries that have consistently delivered a more social, robust sort of deeper, more extensive form of democracy. Um, in the book, though, I don't look so much at the sort of um, economic, socioeconomic aspects, although that's part of what I'm looking at, but it's more about participatory democracy. So it's really about ordinary people um, being able to exercise control at the local level specifically over decisions that affect their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I would not say Venezuela um, is you know, a great example at the moment. I think it's gone through very important changes and it's moved in a very sadly authoritarian direction for you know, at least eight or nine years. Some people would say longer than that. Um, but I do think that at the height of the left turn, which is a period in Latin America when left of center presidents ruled in about two thirds of the region, um, Venezuela had a good claim to being de- democratic, very democratic. And in fact, it led Latin America for a couple of years in citizens thinking of it as a very democratic country. So this actually is a surprise to some scholars of the region, some journalists of the region who think that under Hugo Chavez, the previous president of Venezuela, it was just an authoritarian country, but actually, you know, citizens themselves um, thought of it as a very democratic country. And certainly the study that I'm, you know, doing in the book, I think would back that up at the local level, that there were really interesting participatory experiments that were happening um, mm. on the ground as I'm looking at. So well, I didn't quite answer your question, but that would be one way I'd approach it. Well, I'm very glad you offer this comprehensive answer. But again, Dr. Hatland, before we talk about the country of Bolivia, also I want to go back to your book, and this is something that you wrote, and I quote, Democracy does not pose such a threat to the rich and the powerful. Now, again, when we talk about democracy today, as we mentioned before, experts believe this democratic system is rather fragile. I mean, look at the worldwide but meanwhile, people are also very concerned that this system can be easily manipulated by the elites. And again, we look at the nation of Venezuela and Bolivia. We're going to talk in a second. So how much would you agree with a statement that today that democracy is actually being manipulated or controlled by the elites or or by any other type of superpower? What do you say to that? Sure. So, um, you know, in the book, I talk about this sort of idea of safe democracy or making democracy safe, taking the risk out of democracy, if you will. And if you look at, you know, the long history of democracy going back to ancient Athens, um, elites, rich people didn't want it to happen. They were not in favor of sort of working people, many of whom had been enslaved, you know, uh, or in, in various forms of bonded labor uh, right before there was a sort of a revolutionary movement, in a sense, within ancient Athens. Um, more complicated than that. But if you're looking just at the modern, and so the elites there to sort of finish the story, were not happy with that. So it was a, it was a struggle of sort of, uh, working class. We sort of think of it as 
you know, popular class, lower class people against elites um, and succeeded. And so if you look at also the, you know, modern history of democracy going back to the French Revolution, and you could certainly go back farther than that, um, it's consistently pitted workers, ordinary citizens, poor people, broadly writ against elites. And elites have consistently either opposed democracy entirely or opposed it unless it was safe. And mm. safe means that it didn't pose a particularly great threat to their mm. interests. So if you look just at you know 20th century Latin American history, you have numerous examples of you know rich and powerful interests within the region supported by the U.S. government and certainly with transnational connections to U.S. corporations overthrowing democracy over and over again. So within um, you know the sociology and political science of democracy, there's something of a consensus. It's not entirely uh, agreed upon the fine lines, but something of a consensus that democracy is most stable when it's safest, um, mm. when it doesn't pose a particularly great threat threat to elite interests. But that's a little bit of an irony or a paradox mm. because the whole point of democracy is to empower the people, to empower ordinary citizens. But if you can only have it when ordinary citizens are not really empowered or they're empowered up to a certain limit but not past that limit, then it means that democracy always has to be limited. You can never have what we might think of as a real democracy or as a robust democracy. Um, and if you do have that, the historical record shows that elites will push back against it. Um, and so there's a sort of you know robust scholarship talking about that. And so the book is trying to sort of play with that idea, look at that and say, well, how far can we push? Can we push a little bit further than many people have thought? What are the conditions under which we can do that? Um, what might that look like when we do? Hmm. Dr. Harlan, I want to talk about the nation of Bolivia. Again, this is something that you wrote extensively in your book. Now, the very simple question I want to get started is, how would you describe the word democracy in the nation of Bolivia today? I know you did extensive research and also the research including, again, the term is called leftist hegemony. So again, number one, what is happening today in the nation of Bolivia when we look at democracy? And also, second, how would you define the word called leftist hegemony? And why is that related or how is that related to what's happening in Bolivia today? Go ahead. Sure. So I'll, I'll briefly address the question about Bolivia today, but I want to highlight that the book is not about Bolivia right now. Mm. I mean, it, it's about Bolivia roughly through 2016 with a little bit of information up mm. through 2018, 2019, 2020, um, and then a tiny bit in 2021, but not mm. really much beyond that just because of writing timelines and things like that. Right now, Bolivia is ruled by um, the party of Evo Morales, who's a sort of most famous Bolivian most people around the world would know. Mm. Um, indigenous, first indigenous president um, elected in 2005. He ruled uh, through you know consecutive democratic elections through 2019, and then he was overthrown in a somewhat U.S.-backed military uh, coup, um, a right-wing sort of authoritarian military dictatorship, basically, or military-supported dictatorship came into power for about a year. Then it did, under pressure from popular movements, hold an election. Evo Morales' party, the MAS, the Movement Towards Socialism, was re-elected in... Um, 2020 and has been uh, ruling ever since. So I think the election was in October 2020. Um, but at the moment, Bolivia is actually sort of in an intense struggle within the MAS. Mm. Um, so there's different factions. So Luis Arce, who's the 
the president, the former finance minister of Evo Morales, is the president, but Evo Morales has been opposing him because he wants to himself run. So it's complicated right now. Um, so that's the current sort of lay of the land. And the right in Bolivia, the right wing has been sort of trying to destabilize the government as well over the last couple of years. So it's a messy, complicated, difficult situation. But I say if you go back, you know, a few years earlier, democracy in Bolivia was contested. And there was literally multiple constitutional definitions of democracy. They had a sort of communitarian definition, a representative definition, a direct uh, definition, and more indigenous inflected definitions. Um, so they thought of democracy as multiple, as not just one thing, but as multiple different things. Um, and so Bolivia has had a representative democracy. It's had a, a legislature that's elected. It has a president that's elected, has mayors, has city councilors. Um, but they've also done some direct sort of more participatory experiments. Um, and then they've also sort of carved off indigenous autonomies, which allow for sort of more... Um, indigenous, um, you know, some to some extent traditional, although I think that there's a lot of indigenous experimentation, but to some extent sort of going back to, um, you know, historically uh, based forms of um, indigenous forms of democracy, um, communal democracy, assembly based democracy as well. Um, so I think that Bolivia, it's been a struggle and the right wing within Bolivia has often sort of fought for a more narrow representative mm. definition, rejecting the more communitarian, rejecting the more de direct definitions. And then to some extent, there's a discourse of socialism that has, you know, been part of the contemporary landscape within Bolivia. But um, I'd say that in a historical sense, it would be hard to argue that Bolivia is move significantly in the direction of socialism because there's still, you know, overwhelming private property, not even that much state ownership, a little bit more than there has been in the past. But, um, you know, it remains very much a capitalist economy. Um, but again, you know, I think it's a contested sort of definition. Again, I want to go back to your book that, you know, when I was reading um, regarding the country of Bolivia, that one thing that stood out, again, in your book that you mentioned between the year 2000 to 2005, that protest cycled, I mean, almost shattered the image and also led to the collapse of Bolivia's party system in this revolutionary crisis of hegemony, which characterized by a sudden and sharp uptick in population mobilization. Now, again, for some of us that we aren't familiar with what's happened, uh, what happened in 2000, between 2000 and 2005. So again, Dr. Hatland, walk us through and how would you describe the, uh, I guess, the impact of the protest? And also, why was that important for you to include in your book when we talk about democracy in Bolivia? Sure. Um, so, you know, I go back a little further to the neoliberal area, era. So in, you know, the 1980s and 1990s, there was sort of a process of marketization, moving away from state-owned enterprises, moving away from state-directed developmentalist um, states around the world, but particularly strongly felt in Latin America. And Bolivia was at the forefront of that. So there was, you know, powerful sort of international uh, institutions, international financial and governance institutions like the World Bank, like the International Monetary Fund, like the U.S. government, um, and then regional sort of institutions similarly as well that pushed for a market-based sort of transition within Bolivia. Um, and this had some you know, some modest successes in terms of transitioning uh, 
uh, businesses towards the private sector, but overwhelmingly it was a failure. I mean, in terms of economic growth, in terms of poverty, in terms of equality, um, it was not good for the Bolivian people. And it wasn't even particularly good for um, macroeconomic indicators. So if you looked at Bolivia in the 1990s, it had ups and downs, but it wasn't doing particularly well by standard definitions. Um, so this erupted, this sort of led to a major um, protest cycle, which started in 2000 and was a cycle of popular mobilization against neoliberalism, against this marketization project, um, and for a more sort of true or real definition of democracy. This is people who wanted Bolivians, not foreign companies, to decide on the use of natural resources within mm. Bolivia. So you saw a series of sort of battles between popular protesters and transnational corporations and the Bolivian government and military um, in 2000, there was the Cochabamba Water War, which was against the privatization of the third largest city in Bolivia, Cochabamba, its water supply. Um, and that was successful in uh, reversing a privatization of water. You saw similar battles um, in El Alto, another, the second largest sort of city here along with La Paz, um, sort of a huge uh, dual city in a sense, um, in the highlands. Um, a couple of years later, you saw a battle over natural gas that was centered in El Alto and La Paz, but took place throughout Bolivia in 2003, and then a second gas war in 2005, um, and that was against the sort of uh, funneling of gas to uh, Chile and uh, a demand for the nationalization of gas. So this is a demand for democratic control of natural resources. Mm. And you saw this playing out over and over again. And then it led to state repression of popular protests, which then led to a demand for peace, led to a demand for accountability, led to a demand for justice and more radical demands. There was demands for you know, a rat workers' democracy, demand for socialism, demand for um, an end to essentially 500 years of racist exclusion and oppression of the indigenous majority, that culminates, in a sense, in the election of Evo Morales in 2005, um, but it also gets more complicated once you have Evo Morales in power. So it doesn't fulfill all of the protesters' dreams and hopes, um, but it does lead to the fulfillment of some of the demands that they had during the 2000 to 2005 protest cycle. But um, mm. essentially it was a protest against marketization and for a more sort of popular definition of democracy. Dr. Haaland, I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about political polarization. Again, when we look at democracy today, I guess I want to be careful. On one hand, it's rather devastating to see some countries today are leaning towards political polarization. And again, simply because either the system has been broken for a while or we begin to see rising stars and trying to jump in the political games and again, completely revolutionize this traditional or concert, a conservative way to see politics. But on the other hand, how would you say that political polarization today, either they are taking place among the uh, nations in Latin American region or some countries, again, as you mentioned before, perhaps you mentioned in the book, are actually trying to avoid political polarization. So, again, you mentioned Bolivia and we talk about this and also Venezuela. So, again, Dr. Hetland, what is the political polarization today, particularly in Bolivia or in Venezuela? Is this happening or is countries are trying or has been successfully avoiding this pitfall? What do you say to that? Sure. So, I'll use this to answer an earlier question that I forgot to answer about leftist hegemony, actually, because it relates 
um, fairly directly. But Venezuela is a classic case of polarization. So Hugo Chavez, a leftist uh, military official who um, had been, you know, sort of part of popular protest, but also led a coup in the 1990s, was elected in 1998. Um, he started to radicalize a couple of years later, doing some economic reforms, uh, pro-poor policies, um, some major political reforms as well. And the country of, of Venezuela was extremely polarized. And so you saw, you know, an intense period of conflict between um, supporters of Chavez. So some they're often called Chavistas and then opponents of Chavez, the opposition. Um, and this had a, a few different peaks. Um, 2002, you saw a coup, uh, which the U.S. Um, was involved in, as they have been involved in most, if not, um, maybe not all, but they've been involved in quite a few coups in Latin America over the last, you know, 100 plus, 150 years. Mm. Um, and so you saw a U.S.-backed coup in 2002 overthrowing Chavez. You saw oil strike and oil lockout in 2002, 2003. Um, uh, recall referendum. So really intense period of polarization. Um, and that actually is also the case in the last eight or nine years within Venezuela since Hugo Chavez died in 2013 and Nicolas Maduro, so it's about 10 years, Nicolas Maduro took over. You've seen another intense bout of polarization. What's interesting, though, and what I talk about in the book is that Venezuela became less polarized at least to some extent at the local level, um, around 2006, 2007, 2008, at precisely the time that Hugo Chavez was radicalizing. And so this is one of the things I look at in the book. I'm looking at an opposition-governed city, mm. uh, which slipped from the Chavista government to the, uh, the opposition in 2008, 2009. And you saw intense polarization for a couple of years, but then in 2010, 2011, that dissipated significantly. Mm. And... I went to popular rallies where the opposition mayor was using language associated with Chavismo and had, you know, a majority of the participants in these uh, participatory budget assemblies were, the, were Chavistas in an opposition-controlled uh, municipality. And so it's a head-scratching case because it doesn't fit the narrative of a hyper-polarized uh, country, a hyperpolarized setting, or even a hyperpolarized city, Sukhre, mm. uh, one of the sort of cities I look at in the book. And so the explanation I have is that Chavez and the sort of ruling party, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, achieved what I call leftist hegemony. So mm. hegemony is a Gramscian term that is uh, a way of sort of thinking about political rule that's marked not by force, but by consent, by popular consent. And also, and this is what I talk about a bunch in the book, by an opposition that is forced to play on the ruling bloc's terrain. And so there's a famous example, Margaret Thatcher, who achieved a right-wing form of hegemony, and she was asked, you know, what's your greatest accomplishment? And she said, Tony Blair. Um, and she talks about the Labour Party, the, you know, the opposition within the United Kingdom, and how she forced them to change their minds. And she made them more right-wing, more pro-capitalist, more pro-market than they had ever been before. And so under Chavez within Venezuela, um, in 2008, 2009, 2010, I show that something similar happened, but from the left, a leftist form of hegemony in which the ruling party, to some extent, successfully presents its ideas as the ideas of all, um, took place. And so the, the right-wing opposition uh, within Venezuela moved to the left. They started talking more like Chavistas because they had to, because if they didn't do that, they wouldn't continue to win elections. They wouldn't mm. get political support, at least in much of the country that had been hegemonized, if you will, by Chavismo. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, you know, one of the really interesting things is that it lessened political polarization. You actually saw Chavistas and oppositionists working together at the grassroots level on infrastructure projects, working together to get, you know, water uh, in their neighborhoods, working together for better accountability from the mayor's office for all sorts of things. Um, and I thought that was just a sort of fascinating, really interesting case. And so I use that to sort of talk about this larger theory of leftist hegemony and how that affects how left and right wing forces might relate to each other in particular situations. Well, indeed. Well, again, Dr. Halland, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question. Again, your book is called Democracy on the Ground, Local Politics in Latin America's Left Turn. What would you expect the readers to understand when they finish reading your book? I mean, that's the question I ask every single scholar and every single author. Again, when we look at democracy today, it's something that we have to address. And also, we look at the countries in Latin American regions that are equally important and also equally imperative to the global economy, to the global, uh, again, uh, uh, we'll say social equality. But anyway, so let's just say... For anyone or someone that who does not understand the politics or the economy, the complication of the uh, uh, the countries in Latin America, what would you expect the readers to understand when they close the last chapter of your book? Sure. I would want them to understand that a more real form of democracy is actually possible, that we don't have to settle for, quote unquote, safe democracy. That democracy can be deeper and more extensive, and you can pull the right along. The right can be made to accept that form of democracy under particular conditions, and those particular conditions are when a leftist party achieves a form of hegemony. Um, so this is what we saw happen in Venezuela under Hugo Chavez, and the transformation in just a few years of the Venezuelan right was tremendous, was mm. remarkable, where you know, in 2002, they're supporting a coup against Chavez. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to sort of remove him from office by any means possible. And then a couple of years later, they're copying him. They're using his language. They're calling for his programs to be done better. They're saying, we can be better Chavistas than Chavez himself mm. and then Chavez's party. Um, and so, you you know, imagine Marco Rubio in the United States or imagine right-wing forces in different countries. Um, you know, I know that there's a intense polarization in Thailand, for instance, but imagine that the more leftist candidate is being copied by the right. Mm. That's something what is happening in Venezuela at the time. Um, and so the larger point is that we don't have to settle for safe democracy. If uh, under the right conditions, we can actually get a more real form of democracy, by which I mean a form of democracy in which ordinary people, non-elites, um, workers, students, um, you, you know, middle classes, people who are not earning the top uh, income, people who have been marginalized from politics, marginalized from uh, the economy, are in charge, are actually, you know, having a greater say over the choices that affect their lives. Mm. Um, that more real form of democracy is, in fact, possible. And I think that in the, you know, depressing state of global politics and national politics in much of the world, that's a hopeful thing. And that um, is something that we can you know, try to emulate. It's going to look differently in different places, but I think that, uh, you know, knowing that it is possible is a useful thing to to have. Well said, Professor. Again, at the end of the day, it's still important to understand the value of democracy. It doesn't matter what we live, but meanwhile, it is still important to give the power back to people and also let the voices 
hurt. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Gabriel Hetland. Again, Dr. Hetland is associate professor of Latin Americans, Caribbeans, and also Latina on studies and sociologies at the University at Albany. Again, I strongly encourage everyone to go online, grab a copy of his new book, which is entitled Democracy on the Ground, Local Politics in Latin America's Left Turn. Well, Dr. Hetland, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. We really appreciate your insights and appreciate your uh, sharing with us. We'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to pay attention to those matters. And we wish you the best of luck for your book. Thank you so much for doing this.